Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on the first ever episode of what we're now calling Yanks Go Talking. It's not guaranteed to stay that way. I am Jake, one of the hosts. I'm here with Tom. We've just met each other, so we could leave as best friends forever. We could leave here as mortal enemies. We'll probably leave here somewhere in between. But Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to get started and talk about this. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. All right. So I think just to get started, it'd be nice to share kind of our soccer story, what made us fall in love with the the beautiful game, and why we're two obsessed fans starting a podcast talking about the U.S. men's national team. So do you want to tell the people how you fell in love with the game? Yeah. So I think my story is fairly typical of U.S. men's soccer fans in that the 2010 World Cup really hooked me. Specifically, I've talked to a bunch of American outlaws and the Donovan goal in 2010 sort of hooked them and has kept them in for life. And that was sort of my story as well. That game was a huge turning point for me where I was like, yeah, I love soccer. Followed again through the 2014 World Cup and was lucky enough to be living in Chattanooga right after that and found Chattanooga FC. FC has a really amazing group of fans. The Chattahooligans are great. They immediately welcomed me in and got me into local soccer. And from there, it's just been slowly growing, slowly following the game. I've now lived in Chattanooga, Nashville, New Mexico, and everywhere I've gone, I've found amazing fans and joined American Outlaws chapters, supporters groups, and just slowly become more and more involved and started following the game more and more. It's been great to sort of have this sort of, I guess, 10-year journey now from that first World Cup to where I am now and like actually understand things and follow it almost religiously. Yeah, absolutely. I think one one of my favorite things about soccer is just there's something new that can happen every game. It's so mm-hmm. um, unorthodox in certain styles and, and ways that teams play. So um, no, that's great. You've definitely moved around a bit, had a bit of diversity and variety in the teams that you've been able to support. Um, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm quite similar to you. I think the turning point to become truly serious about the fandom was definitely the 2010 World Cup. Um, growing up, I played soccer my, my whole life. I went to Metro Stars games in the Meadowlands when there was 5,000 fans there on average and really just started from there. But 2010 was definitely the turning point where I still you know have chills thinking about Tim Howard throwing it out wide to Landon Donovan and making the run in to, to clean up the goal and just everyone dogpiling him at the, the corner flag. It's just, that's the, the moment that you live for. That's why you continue watching because anything like that can happen any game. Um, so that's really my soccer story. I've, uh, I grew up in central New Jersey, so I followed religiously the Metro stars, the Red Bulls for a long time. I then moved to a Philadelphia suburb and kind of went back and forth between Red Bulls and Union just because the Union, um, you know, were close to me and I love watching live soccer. I now live in London, so I'm surrounded by soccer and and football fandom. Unfortunately, with COVID, I haven't been able to get out to any of the grounds and see the games live, but hopefully that changes soon. Um, That's the best place in the world to start following soccer, though. And Absolutely. Got so many awesome teams around you. Yep, I'm about a mile from the Arsenal Stadium, the Emirates, um, about three miles from Stamford Bridge and uh, the Fulham Ground Craven Cottage. So just all the things that I have on the, the bucket list I want to check out and make sure that I, I see before we, we head out. But I'll be here for a few years and we will definitely be going to, to all those live games. That's awesome. All right, so we're going to talk a bit about just at a high level how you felt about the game last night. Uh, U.S. obviously beat Honduras one nothing, uh, and it was an interesting game to say the least. I think we have probably more complaints than we do have positives to talk about. Um, but Tom, I'd just like to kind of get your your general feeling. Like, what's the the top thing that you're taking away from last night's game? I I think to sum it up in a word is frustration. I think that's the general feeling around the U S soccer verse right now. And I'm no exception. I'm just frustrated that the U S didn't 
look polished. They didn't look clean. It was it was in short a CONCACAF game. We knew going in it was going to be a CONCACAF game. We got what was billed, but it doesn't make it less frustrating that the U.S. couldn't do anything from large stretches of the game, and that, that just always annoys me when I watch it. Yeah. What were your thoughts, Jake? I, I completely agree. Uh, it's really tough when you come away from a game winning and feel like this. And honestly, it rarely feels like that with CONCACAF because you're just happy to to get away. Um, but with the group of players that we have now, with all of the talk that Greg's been doing about team building and implementing the style and just being able to, like, it feels like at some point these games should become easier. <laughs> that, like, our team is better than it was five or ten years ago. We have more talent. We have a higher ceiling. We hypothetically should have better coaching and better staff. And it just feels like we, we're we not making progress. And that's what frustrates me the most. So I completely agree with your word. I completely agree with what stuck out to you. And for me, you know, it's very rare that on these occasions where we win the game and we're, you know, we're on to the, the Nations League final. It's It was important. And, you know, not making the World Cup last last go around, uh, not making the Gold Cup final when we lost to Jamaica. I almost have like that same feeling, but we won. So I I don't know. I, I'm not that confident going into the Mexico game, but yeah, I, I walk away from that game just completely exacerbated and frustrated with where we're going to go from here. Yeah, I think your point about not seeing any improvement is a really important one. I, I saw someone make the point last night. They felt like they were watching a 2017 version of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, and I completely agree. I com- yeah, it, it felt like watching a pre-Greg Burhalter or even a very early Greg Burhalter version of the U.S. And you would expect, given a complete roster shakeup, well, you have to also put in the caveat that was a very young roster. But still, you would expect at some point that they can flip the switch and play their potential. Mm-hmm. So far, we just haven't seen the U.S. playing to their potential at all. And it at some point, it has to happen because this team is too good not to have that happen. Yeah. it's it's It can be a conversation that could take us five hours to talk about Greg's tactics and if that's right or wrong for a national team and what it really takes to implement that type of style for a group that gets together four or five times a year. Um, but at points last night, I was thinking to myself, you know, who would really take advantage of this group of talent, Bruce Arena or Bob Bradley. Oh no. <laughs> and they're... Bob Bradley. I agree. Bruce, Arena. man, that is the most frustrating name to hear. I know. I know they're, they're not true thoughts. They're not realistic thoughts, but it's just like, man, I wish at some point our coach could get the most out of this talent. I don't care if it's if they're playing possession. I don't care if they're playing high press. I just want them to elevate to the level that I know they're at for their club teams. Yeah, and some of the names that should have been mentioned in the coaching search, and you could go into another whole thing about that. And it's it's just frustrating knowing that Burhalter has this style and he wants to play his quote unquote system, and it just doesn't show up sometimes. And last night was a prime example of the system didn't work. Definitely. So let's, let's get your three stars from last night's game. Who impressed you? Yeah. Yeah. So I got Josh Sargent is my first star, um, which is going to be kind of a controversial choice, but I thought his defensive work was great. I think his goal line clearance, especially stands out as worthy of a star. Uh, because even though it's not a goal, it's almost as good of a goal to have that good of a goal line clearance. In addition to that, I thought he played really well dropping back into the midfield and almost was our best midfielder, and I thought he did really well defensively. Still not quite as clinical as we'd like on the finishing, but that chance from Robinson and what was it? It was about the 25-minute mark uh, where he had a great headed ball at goal was a really excellent chance. And he also had a couple of great moments where if Pulisic or Reyna just tap the ball over to him, he puts it away and it's a very different game. So I thought Sargent deserves the first star. My second star is going to go to Gio Reyna. I thought he was 
a monster all game. He was driving at Honduras. He was creating chances. He looked dangerous passing. He took people on on the dribble. That moment where he sliced up the entire team and only missed the shot wide was probably the best chance the U.S. created all day. You could argue that he probably should have tapped that over to Josh Sargent, like I said, but he was just, he was excellent all game long. He was also the most fouled player, I think, looking into the statistics, and it was deserved. Honduras realized that they had no chance to stop him, so they just hacked him all game long. Now, for my man of the match, my third star is going to go to Siebichu, just because, man, that goal changed the conversation. Without that goal, I assume it's a loss on penalty kicks, and we're even more frustrated than we start talking today. So, deserved man of the match. He was in a great spot. That's a great... He also looked really good defensively. I thought that once that goal went in, he dropped back and played the Josh Sargent role really well. So, I'm going to go with those three as my three star standout performers of the match. With honorable mention going to John Brooks and Weston McKinney. Yep. The midfield kind of disappeared, but McKinney did have a really solid game when you look at the stats. And John Brooks, man, his passing, it's on another level. I love those gifts that are being shared in the, the Discord with the John Brooks passes. Oh, yeah. Just cutting out that, eight or nine players with one pass. Just absolutely amazing if you can all put the that Pulisic. together. That crossfield pass to Pulisic is the stuff of dreams. Yep. Definitely. So I definitely agree with you. Josh Sargent is just an absolute monster when it comes to his physicality. Uh, you see this, you know, with his club team in Bremen that he just runs tirelessly, and we need that for for the way that our team plays. I thought his header on goal was actually really solid. I saw some people saying, "Why did he hit it right at the goalie?" But he actually made that opportunity for himself. And on one of the plays, he got in front of the defender really nicely and was unlucky to to put his boot on it. So definitely agree there. Um, Jordan, are we calling him Sabichu or P-Folk now? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> Both? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to go with Jordan P-Folk as my number two. Um, thought he was really solid as a substitute. And you're right. I, I assume it's a loss. I just assume that we're having a completely different conversation that we don't have a game on Sunday and that, you know, Greg's head might even be on, on the swivel if he doesn't put that away and to credit to him as well. Uh, McKinney set her down Aronson with the little dummy to, to let him have it. But the amount of power that he put on that header to generate that power and to place the top corner was, was really nice to see from him. And I think third star, not quite man of the match, but Clint Dempsey deserves a shout out as kind of his introduction into the broadcasting world. I thought the broadcast team last night was probably one of the best things about the game. Agreed. They were awesome. I, I went to Furman, which is where Dempsey went to college, so I've always had a soft spot for him, and he was just spot on all night. He yeah. also just has just an air personality about him that's just amazing and unrivaled in U.S. players. I don't think we'll ever see another Dempsey. I don't either. It's so unique to him. I almost don't want there to be another one. Love if they have the fire and the the grit, but there there's no one like Clint Dempsey. All right, so we, we have our three stars. We have some man of the match honors. What was your maddest moment, Tom? Oh, my maddest moment. I'm going to go with the amount of times the stretcher crew was on the stinking field <laughs> that it, it, it's a CONCACAF game. You expect time wasting, but Honduras really took it up a notch and you almost have to applaud their commitment to diving and time wasting because they were on the ground for the entire second half and it just killed the entire half. Every single time we saw the U S get some momentum start to play through each other, build up confidence. Stretcher crew was out and we were on a three minute break. Yep. And uh, it's just, it's CONCACAF and you can't say anything about it other than it's just frustrating. The commitment for the players to be down long enough to get those stretchers out. I mean, can, can you even be upset? And 
when when I was making the notes for this, I wrote down what what my maddest moment was. I had one word, stretchers. So I think we're on the same page there. <laughs> yeah. I and when you look at the added time at the end of the second half, I'm not going to complain given the US had a one goal lead but 4 minutes. Ridiculous. That's just that, that's not enough. Yeah. That's one stretcher crew. There were what, 5 or 6? It uh, got so bad. The US soccer Twitter account was actually complaining about it live during the game, which is <laughs> almost impressive. You know it's bad when the official accounts start to get into the the blame games. Mm, they they specifically called out the one where one of the Honduran attackers just fell down in the US attack defensive half when the US was attacking 60 yards away from the ball and they brought the stretcher crew out for him. Credit to the admin at, at point, US Soccer, yeah. whoever you are. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I normally have my complaints about the men's national team Twitter account, but they they got it right yesterday. They they had some great tweets, and that was probably the tweet of the night from them. Maybe another honorable mention. Yeah, build in yeah. a few more stars. <laughs> yeah, I almost want to give them an honorable mention because it was deserved and needed to be called out. And at some point, the referee just has to let the game play on. I thought the ref didn't really have control of the match from the get go. Yeah, but. You don't have to stop the match for them. Not they're everything gonna go down, is a head injury. Let, yeah, you 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 let the game play on a little bit. Let the UN finish the attack before stopping play. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to move on to the bulk of our segment, which is called Pivot or Stick. We're going to talk about what we would have changed from last night and what we will stick with, what we enjoyed, what we liked about the performance. So why don't we start with the starting eleven? Um, what were your thoughts on the starting 11? What would you have changed? What did you like in, in terms of that? So before the game, I actually created a what I would like to see starting 11. And Burhalter stuck pretty close to what I expected. Um, Burhalter ran with Stefan and goal, subbing in for Horvath, which was an expected change. We saw Dest playing right back with a Brooks-Mark McKenzie partnership at center back. Anthony Robinson was the left back. Then in the midfield, we saw our dual eights be Weston McKenney, Sebastian Legette, and then Jackson Ewell played the six. And then in attack, we saw Christian Pulisic sub in for Brendan Aronson with Josh Sargent at striker and Gio Reyna on the right wing. Before the game, my only changes were I wanted to see Eunice Musa in for Sebastian Legette. And I really wanted to see Kellen Acosta play for Jackson Ewell. And Berhalter didn't make those changes, but he did, to his credit, get Anthony Robinson on the field. And I like that. Unfortunately, the complaints are all going to go to Jackson Ewell. And they're be deserved because he just did not look the part last night. I, I wanted to see Kellen Acosta because I think he adds more defensively. He's a little bit calmer on the ball. And just a player who has experience dealing with these concacaf games and can get things done, which I didn't think Yule did well at all. What were your thoughts, Jake? Yeah, definitely. I think if there's one takeaway from last night, it's that the young team got experience with a CONCACAF opponent, a true opponent that's lying in the low blocks and getting those stretchers out onto the field. For the starting 11, I, you know, I completely agree with you. I would have liked to see Acosta. I wonder how close Tyler Adams is to going 90 or at least starting the game. I think my biggest worry about that lineup is having the two eights that play almost exactly the same in terms of their personality on the field and their work greets. Um, I don't think it was too bad of a starting 11. And to be honest, if we had scored one of our early chances it's a completely different game that we're having a completely different conversation. But the fact is that we didn't and that we continued the game in that same exact setup with almost the same exact players for, you know, 75, 80 minutes. So Jackson Ewell is a really interesting point of discussion because one of his talents and one of the abilities that continually gets talked about is the way that he's able to ping balls to the opposite side of the field to really disorganize the defense and give our wingers enough space to dribble at the goal. 
What, how did you think he did last night? I know you had some comments around him and his performance. What was it about his performance that you didn't really rate? I thought he just looked slow and indecisive. You know, his passing is supposed to be his best quality. And there was more than one time where I thought he needs to make this pass and the pass wouldn't come. Then he'd take two dribbles and turn the ball over. And that's just not going to cut it against any international. And if you can't get a a dot against a Honduran team who is parking a sizable bus in front of their goal, what international team is going to be able to, are you going to break down with that kind of play? And I, I just didn't see any, any of that, you know, sharp cross field passing that we're used to seeing from him at San Jose, which it, it's frustrating given how long he played in that game. Yeah, definitely. I think one of my gripes with Jackson Ewell isn't so much him as a player, but it's the drop off in quality from trying to play him as a six in the same exact way that we would play Tyler Adams. I think in certain points of our starting 11, there are places where depth is really good um, and maybe doesn't matter so much. But at that specific position, I really don't think we can play him on his own, sitting in the pocket or sitting right above the defense to to help them out. Um, and once we saw that they were sitting back in the, the, the bus, if you want to call it, putting 11 players behind the ball, uh, one thing that I thought stuck out to me was sometimes the Honduras team would man-mark Jackson Ewell and not allow the play to shuffle through between him. So they were really stopping the transition between defense and attack. And there weren't really any tactical changes made to help that. Um, McKinney and Legette were continuing to try and push the defensive line up with the other three forwards. And it was really leaving us exposed in the midfield because Ewell isn't good enough or quick enough or decisive enough, like you said, to really make that work. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Honduras use that exact same strategy in Olympic qualifying to great deal of success? So I want to give a shout out to the Reddit community because they pick up things that uh, you really just have to go and dig deep on. But you're exactly right. They use the same exact type of defending and same exact tactical flexibility to really attack us in the Olympic qualifying. And we lost that game. Um, the, the funny thing is we are really trying to implement a complete style from, you know, our U23s, our U18s, our U17s, all the way up to the senior team. So there's not really a lot of difference when teams are going to prepare for the way they play our national team, our our senior national team or the U23s. And for Honduras, you, you could actually see that happening where they, they played almost the exact same way with almost the exact same success. Yeah, it really was. It was about the same game. And actually, the last time I was that frustrated watching a U.S. game was that game against Honduras in Mexico a couple months ago. And it was that same disorganized, the midfield getting completely overrun and man-marking Jackson Yule out of the game. You saw all night last night. Brooks and McKenzie passed around the sixth position because A, Ewell couldn't cut it, and B, he was being man-marked, which you can't have happen, especially given that Jackson Ewell, when he plays, is not going to play the same way Tyler Adams does, where Tyler Adams is sort of a destroyer who's going to basically just cycle possession and does a really good job when he's marked on the ball. He's supposed to sit back and make those deep plays, but he doesn't have time to do that, and he's not decisive enough decisive enough to do that at the national team level. And so we, we saw last night a lot of frustration from the system being completely marked out of the game. Absolutely. And, and that has to weigh heavy on the players' minds as well. You mentioned the center backs, John Brooks and Mark McKenzie, kind of bypassing that role, and they almost had to out of necessity. So I wanted to ask you now, switching from the starting 11 to the actual tactics that were employed, what were your thoughts on that? What would you have changed and what did you like about it? I, you know, in the 4-3-3, I'm not sure that it's built to take on the bus the way that it's designed by Burhalter. It's, it's a possession-based system, but especially last night, it was so slow. When you're playing a team who's in that low 4-4-2, two sets of four guys stretched across the field, 
guarding their goal, you're going to have to really move the ball around fast, switch the play, be decisive, be incisive. And we just didn't see that. We saw almost a lot of hero ball from Christian Pulisic and Giovanni Reina in order to make anything happen for large stretches of the game. And when you're playing that low block 4-4-2, you're not going to get a whole lot of chances for Pulisic or Reina to dribble through three guys and make something happen. You have to be much better at moving the ball around if you're going to break down that block. And we didn't see that at all. I really didn't think Berhalter's tactics worked at all to try and basically disorganize that defensive shape of Honduras. Yep. And to go back to the word frustrating, what frustrated me the most about last night's game is Berhalter's system is supposed to play quickly. It's supposed to disorganize the defense by switching the ball field to field. And it's supposed to give space so that they can work the ball into the box. And against a team like Honduras that's putting 11 people behind the ball, that should supposedly work. Um, but it, it wasn't really happening. And to continue with the frustration, we came out in the second half playing the exact same way and the exact same tactics. What do you think about Bearhalter's flexibility with his tactics and style? Uh, it's almost non-existent, which is very frustrating. End of I, story. I thought at halftime... <laughs> Yeah, I, it, there, there, there's very little to say about his tactical flexibility because it there wasn't any last night. I thought at halftime there needed to be a change. I, I don't know who comes on, preferably someone for Yule because he clearly wasn't cutting it. I would have also preferred maybe a Musa sub just to add something different to the midfield. But clearly your midfield's not getting it done. You've got to change something because you only have 45 minutes to avoid a penalty shootout and... We know the U.S. isn't built for penalties. And I just didn't see any ability for Burhalter to change the game. It's one of the things that worries me the most going forward. It's not about the style or what we're trying to implement as a team or the brotherhood that we're building. But it's the fact that in two straight games now, I'm talking about the Switzerland game that we lost 2-1 and this, this most recent game against Honduras, there have not been any changes. And you can make the argument, right, that he's really trying to implement what he wants to do. He thinks it will work against this team. And he wants to give the team reps in what they're trying to do. So if they're working in practice at switching the ball or making those long switches or how they're pressing, there's an argument to be made that you know you play that way so that you get real-life reps. But what worries me the most is in the Switzerland game, at halftime, the Swiss team made a change by putting Zuber in, and they dropped a second person into the midfield. They immediately started to bypass our press. And there was not one change uh, to the style or to the way that we were playing tactically to really account for that. We were still pressing high up the field, even when we weren't in uh, a losing possession scenario. And last night against Honduras, there weren't any changes at halftime, whether that was personnel or tactically. And the same exact game continued to play out. And now Honduras has the incentive to really run out the clock and go to penalties. So for us to really not make any changes until 10 minutes were left in the game, I mean, it really just leaves you wondering what's going on in Greg's head for what he needs to do to, to change things up and get a better result. Now, I will give credit to Burhalter, slight bit. This is the slightest bit of credit. I don't know if that's allowed, make... Tom. I, I, I'm not sure that I'm allowing it either, <laughs> but he did make his first major tactical change at the 93rd minute mark, where he subbed Christian Pulisic for Matt Miazga and switched to three. All right, we're going to give some claps to, to Greg for that one. But at the same time, you waited till the 93rd minute after you had already scored your goal before you changed anything. Before that, it was all like for like subs. Yeah, I, I think the major change he made was he brought on Reggie Cannon for Anthony Robinson as his first sub in the 77th minute. And essentially that pushes Dest to the left and keeps and moves Cannon to the right. But really, what are you changing there? I, I don't see what Cannon offers that Robinson's not going to offer an attack when clearly Honduras isn't going to be 
attacking at all in the last 15 minutes of the game. Yeah, and at that time, it's still 0-0. We need to be pushing for a goal. It was like Mm -hmm. he was trying to frustrate us. He knew what was going to frustrate us the most. Um, Yeah, we were in the Discord. I was in the U.S. Soccer Discord server with some guys chatting about the game live. And someone actually called it. They're like, yeah, watch, Reggie Cannon's going to be the first sub, and we're all going to be frustrated. Fifteen minutes later, <laughs> that was the first sub. And I, I honestly couldn't believe it, because I there are about four or five guys who I thought could have been subbed in before Cannon got a look. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, We'll see what happens with the next game, but man, there are not a lot of things to take away that can give you a bit of confidence for the the near future yeah now what would you have thought of deandre yedlin getting a look in that game i am a deandre yedlin stan i it's it's an interesting question now are you asking about him in a fullback position or in a wing position i think in a fullback position which is what we were playing last night because i i think he would have offered an interesting look going in that cannon substitute role, maybe around the 60th minute mark? I would have for sure preferred him over cannon. I mean, in that scenario, I see it. I would have seen that as a somewhat offensive substitute. I know Yedlin's going to push up higher. I know he can use the speed. And I know for his club teams, whether that's Newcastle or his new team in Turkey, that he's really used to stretch the defense and make sure he's putting crosses into the box, which we needed at that time. And... For Cannon to come in, who is, I, I'm a fan of Cannon as well, but more on the defensive side. I see Cannon as the one fullback that has the best defensive qualities. And and Yedlin, Robinson, Dest, they all bring something offensively. So for him to put in Cannon over Yedlin with that substitute, I mean, it was more the signal than anything else for me. But yeah, I would have much preferred Yedlin if if we're talking about putting another fullback in, which is down on my priority list of things that needed to change before the 77th minute. Oh, agreed. Yeah, I, I still think Yunus Musa not playing has been my biggest gripe of the game because his work rate and ability to change a midfield structure is just unparalleled in the player pool right now him to not see the field at all when your midfield is getting overrun that's almost unconscionable let's break that down for a minute because Musa has really impressed me with his ability to dribble um, dribble through players and allow different lines to be broken for the opponent and it was definitely something that was missing last night with our midfield trio what are your thoughts on to why Musa isn't starting or getting as much time as some of the other players? I honestly don't have a reason. I think in Greg Berhalter's mind, and this is weak excuses in my opinion, he's choosing players based on form and fitness, and Musa has not had a lot of club minutes over the last two months. I think he's played twice for Valencia since the start of April, maybe three or four times. He's not had more than a hundred, maybe, maybe more than 180 total minutes since the beginning of April with his club. And so I think Berhalter's prioritizing someone like Sebastian Legette, who is playing week in and week out full 90 with LA galaxy. I don't think that that is a legitimate choice to make right now, but that I think is the choice that Greg Berhalter is making. You're right. I, Maybe we'd need a new segment next time called In the Mind of Greg Bearhalter, where we try and decipher what he's thinking there. But to to that point on fitness, for Yunus Musa, he's been in the camp where they've been training in the Alps at altitude. Um, he played a few minutes against Switzerland. He hasn't played zero minutes for his club. He's been a late substitute, so I'll give you that. But to, to not play him for more than 10 or 15 minutes in that game, like you said, it's almost negligent to be the coach and have a player that is perfect for breaking down that type of team defensively. And to not put him in until the last 10 minutes, I mean, that's what substitutes are for. You can start him, and if he's tired in the 50th minute or the 60th minute, 
put on fresh legs, put on Sebastian Legette. But to have 10 minutes in that game where he's the perfect answer to what Honduras is giving us is just one, chalk it up to one of the many things that don't make much sense from last night. Did he get 10 minutes? I didn't think he saw the field. What's, didn't he come on at the very end? No, I don't think he did. I think he was, yeah, he was left completely on the bench. Zero minutes uh, I might played. be thinking about the Switzerland game then. Yeah, he was subbed on in the Switzerland game around the 62nd minute. So we got about 30 minutes there. But Greg did not use him at all. He was an unused sub. I mean, then you think about, like, at our striker position, right? We we subbed on Jordan Sabachu for for Sargent. We have Wea on the bench. Uh, Sabachu plays his club team, uh, I believe it's in Switzerland, actually, at Young Boys. So it's maybe a Tier 2, Tier 3 European club. Musa is in La Liga. He's on a average La Liga team. He's getting minutes. He's 18 years old. He's not in a bad league, not on a bad club. You would think in terms of form and, and fitness for what he's been doing in, in camp. I mean, it might be one of those times where I just say I almost have to trust that Greg knows something that we don't uh, because it's it's extremely worrying for, for him to not see the field. Yeah, I agree. Now, I also get frustrated by that because when you go back, go back to the olden days of U.S. with Bruce Arena when Christian Pulisic was just breaking through. And Pulisic would play, you know, that same sort of sub-appearance role frequently only 10, 15 minutes for Dortmund and then come to U.S. games and pour in a goal and three assists. Yeah. About the same age. And you've got to think that Musa could contribute a lot in a game like that. And I, I just, I don't know why we didn't see him. Yeah. I, I also think Tim brings up a good point where we made like-for-like like substitutions. We brought on Aronson for Reyna. We brought in Siebichu for Sargent. I almost think that a Tim Weah for Sargent or Tim Weah for Sebastian Legett would be a really interesting substitute when you're pressing for a goal where you bring on an extra attacker and give sort of Pulisic Reina more of a chance to drop into that sort of midfield space that they wanted to occupy. They wanted to drop deep and pick the ball up. Bring on Wea instead of for Legette and give yourself more options in the box so that when Pulisic, when Reina drop in, you have people who are still stretching the defense. Yep. And the interesting thing with that, I love the idea, is that all four of our forwards then at that point are comfortable dropping in and picking up the ball and getting their head up to to look towards the opponent's goal. Uh, it doesn't need to be Wea. It could be Rena. It could be Pulisic, and they can all switch positions and and give the opposition fits. But again, we're we're kind of sideline coaching at this point. Uh, we don't know what Greg's seeing in camp. So what what would you give Greg in terms of a rating on a one zero to ten scale for last night? I have him down for a three out of ten. I had problems with the starting lineup. I had problems with the substitute timing and substitute choice. And so as far as like compliments, he used his same starting 11. I'm not going to give him a whole lot of credit for that. And he really didn't do much positive to impact the game. Yeah. Do you feel confident with him going forward? Oh, I don't. I, I, I think that if you're going to make a change, you don't want to wait until he gets blown out in a World Cup qualifier like we did last time. I was going to say, if if you're saying you don't want to wait for change, then the U.S. might be the wrong federation to be supporting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we're, we're stuck with Greg through this World Cup cycle. I think I, so. I think that that is the unfortunate nature. There's been some discussion of late of is Greg Berhalter a one or two World Cup, World Cup cycle coach? And I hope that he's a one World Cup cycle coach because using him eight years, when you have the talent that we do, is just almost unforgivable. Agreed. And the resources that we have at the U.S. Soccer Federation, to, to hire an MLS coach, which I'm genuinely not against, 
I would love to have Tata Martino or any of the other names that were on the list. But to have Greg Berhalter be challenging in the World Cup with this group of players that are all going to be, you know, early 20s at the time where they're playing in their first World Cup together. Yeah, it doesn't fill me with confidence. It, it does somewhat of the opposite. But I, I do think we're stuck with him. I don't think his brother is going to do anything about getting rid of him or, or changing the coach setup. And I think... It, okay. I think his brother did leave U.S. soccer. I, I don't think Jay Burrowhalter is with U.S. Soccer Federation anymore. Right, so well, that at least is a positive. There we go. <laughs> no... Uh, no brothers being able to make decisions on on the coach of the head national team. But I do think we're we're stuck with him through better or worse through this next World Cup cycle. I think the Federation is committed to at least trying to implement this style of soccer, at least trying to implement this high-pressing possession, disorganizing game. And we'll see how it goes. So um any other points from last night's game that you want to touch on before we move to looking ahead at this Sunday's matchup against Mexico? I, I think that the last point I want to touch on is the ultimate question that comes to everyone's mind after that game is what the heck do you do to replace Tyler Adams? Because clearly what we did last night wasn't, wasn't the answer. Is it a personnel change? Is there someone in the pool who can sort of be an Adam's light or is it, do we need to have a formation change? And if we do have a formation change, what the heck is the right formation to fill in for Tyler Adams? Yeah. I love the question because when I touched on earlier about um, when I would like to see Bob Bradley or potentially Bruce Serena coaching this team, it was more the fact that those, there are certain coaches, especially for the national team, which will, change their setup and change their formation to get the best 11 players on the field. And that's really important for a national team because you're not going to have depth at every position and you might have more depth or more players that are playing in a certain position. So when we talk about Tyler Adams, I think we can only play the way that we tried to play last night with Tyler Adams on the field. And for me, I'm not against Jackson Ewell playing. I'm not against Acosta. I think they're fringe national team quality. I think if we go forward with without Tyler Adams or without him being healthy, we need to have two pivots sitting deeper. And McKinney can do that, although I like him higher up the field. I don't like Sebastian Legette doing that. I'd be interested in seeing Musa pair um maybe more as a box-to-box midfielder with our center defensive mid. But I do think without Tyler Adams on the field, the U.S. doesn't have enough quality depth at that position to play with just one pivot. I think we need two if we're not going to have Adams on the field. What do you think? I I almost agree. I think that a 4-2-3-1 would be a very interesting look for that team. Now, the question becomes, who were those sixes and who is the ten? I think Gio Reyna is an interesting choice for the 10, but I also think that is defensively a little bit unsound. Brendan Aronson's not a bad choice for that spot. Um, but the six has become an interesting question. I like McKenney there, but I'm not sure it's his best position. I, I just, I'm not sure who would really fill that spot effectively of our midfield options. Agreed. And I'm, I'm definitely not one to say that Michael Bradley should be invited back to camp. So I, I do think we need to figure that out a bit. Do you think we see... I, I think Owen Adesawi would be an interesting choice there. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure he's ready yet, but Adesawi, Johnny Cardoso are interesting midfield selections that might take advantage of that setup. Definitely. And I mean, playing in the Premier League or playing in the Brazilian Serie A, um, yeah. Those, those aren't leaks to sneeze at. So I think Johnny or uh, Odasawi can definitely do the job. Um, but they need reps. They need to be in camp. They need to be building chemistry with these guys. So moving on to the Mexico game and maybe a good transition, do, you, do we see the same formation or do we see a change up to support that center defensive mid position a bit more? I hope we see a change. I 
think that a back three is dangerous against Mexico. I'm not sure that we're ready for it, but a 4-2-3-1 would be nice to see. Just to add some extra cover, I think we're going to be playing pretty wide because either Anthony Robinson or Reggie Cannon is going to start the game. And we're going to have Dest bombing up one of the two flanks. The other flank, Cannon likes to get forward. Robinson definitely likes to get forward. Who is going to cover against a very dangerous Mexico team in transition? Yep, definitely agree. Do you think uh, player for player, the talent lies with the U.S. or Mexico at this point? I think that the U.S. is as talented, if not more talented, than the Mexican national team at this point. Mexico created more chances last night, but they didn't necessarily look lethal. They looked faster and more comfortable with each other. And that's a factor of the fact that their core is experienced and all play in pretty much the same league. They're pretty used to each other. Yeah, I think John Brooks is really the only true veteran on this team at this point that's starting every game and really able to, to give the young guys an experience factor on the field. He is. Uh, everyone else is younger than him. Brooks is the only one to have played at a World Cup on the starting 11. DeAndre Yedlin is the other veteran, if you're going to put it that way. Yeah. Um, but he's not seen enough minutes this camp. So I don't think Berhalter trusts him to start. Maybe gives him a sub-appearance. Yep. So what are your expectations come Sunday night? I expect the U.S. to hopefully sit a little bit deeper. We're going to come out and try and press Mexico. Mexico's trying to come out and play around that press. I hope that we play a little bit more counterattacking than we've seen so far. Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna up top gives us the option to sit a little bit deeper and protect that back line. And when the ball turns over, just let them fly. Yep. A little bit like the, the old school four, four, two that we used to have with uh, Donovan, Altador, and Davies on the field together. Mm-hmm. I do think... Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting... A four-four-two honestly wouldn't be a bad choice for this next game. Like, honestly, it would be interesting to see how that worked. <laughs> well, do you, think, do you think Greg is ready to make any adjustments to his team and his style? He's not. And that's the unfortunate nature of it. And that's why I have low expectations, honestly, going into this next game. Yep. So anything that you're truly looking forward to? Um, I am looking forward to seeing Pulisic get a chance to play against this team. I, I do think that it'll be a really fun competitive game. But if Mexico scores first, it's going to get really boring really fast and <laughs> really frustrating really fast. It might look like a bit of the Honduras game with a few less stretchers. I, I don't think it'll look much like the Honduras game, personally. Mexico and the U.S. don't tend to play that style. They tend to get into fistfights, and it tends to get ugly in other ways. But it won't be a sort of Concacafy ugly. It will be a, these two federations hate each other, and it shows every time they play. I'm going to take but your I word also for think it that it's not going to get Concacafy. I... I've been to U.S.-Mexico. Actually, I was at the 2018 game in Nashville where Matt Miazga and I guess it was Linus got into it. meme. Yes, the infamous <laughs> you're too short meme. I was in that stadium. That game got nasty. It was really, really fun to watch. Uh, that tends to be the way U.S. and Mexico play each other. So I expect to see that. But if Mexico scores first... The U.S. is already playing pretty open and already giving up lots of opportunities in transition. If they have to chase a game, I, I don't even want to think about how that goes against a team lethal as Mexico. Yeah, I think something that's helping me look forward to it is that after last night, I have very low expectations. And I say that now on Friday afternoon. I know on Sunday afternoon, I'm going to have very high expectations again of winning this game. Um but yeah, if Mexico wins, we, we have the Gold Cup coming up later this summer. We have World Cup qualifying to look forward to. And it's another good repetition against probably the best team in our federation. Um, so, all right, some score predictions, some predictions for what's going to happen on Sunday night. What are your thoughts? 
I've got Christian Pulisic scoring and the U.S. unfortunately falling 2-1 to Mexico. And I really wouldn't be that unhappy with that result. It would be an improvement on that awful 2019 Gold Cup. So if we can just achieve something similar to that, I'll consider it to be, if not a a small victory, at least not a huge loss. Definitely. I think if we can get out of there without being shut out and losing by one or tying and going to penalties, then I think I'll be a bit happier than I am currently. One nothing against Honduras doesn't feel great. I know Mexico is a great team that is playing together and that has great chemistry. So I really wouldn't be that upset uh, at losing a game which Footmob obviously doesn't rate as a, a true and real game. Um, but obviously, as a fan of the team with the talent that we have, I I do think there's some expectation, there's some pressure that we need to start putting on this group to perform. I agree. This is the last true competitive match we're going to see this squad play until it matters in World Cup qualifying. So realistically, they're out of time to get it together. It's time to start winning. It would be really nice to see them actually win the match. I don't know if we've got it in us, but Mexico didn't score last night and weren't altogether perfect. So there is some hope. And if it's going to happen, it's got to start happening. Definitely. I think you said it well. It is time to start winning. Um, So with that, any final thoughts on the games either uh, that have happened already, the Sunday game coming up, or anything that we've talked about? I think we pretty much got it all. Awesome. Well, Tom, thanks so much for your time. I think uh, I had a lot of fun. Don't know about you. But we'll definitely oh, continue do doing this. Great. So on Sunday, uh, we'll watch the match. I think there will be a live chat in the Discord as well as the Reddit. So please uh, join us there if you would like to chat with us. If you have any questions, shoot us a note on those as well. Um, once Sunday night's game is over, I'm sure we'll be back on Monday talking about the game. So Tom, with that, we're going to sign off. And thanks so much. Have a great day, everyone. Have a great day, guys.